Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everybody. Um, continuing, you know, last week, we're in the, in the process of going through a little bit, kind of more than halfway done going through Heart of the Revolution. We're on chapter nine tonight. And, you know, we did the loving kindness, the Metta Sutta last week. I feel like it was a little too brief, abbreviated, um, and that we could actually spend months just talking about the loving kindness, Metta Sutta. So maybe we'll come back to it. Um, but tonight's chapter is also about kindness and the application of uh, kindness and the importance of, of kindness as um, situational ethics of how we show up in, in our lives and in our actions. And, uh, and so my sense is that the loving kindness meditation practice is what prepares us and um, you know, uh, develops the skill and the ability to be more consistently friendly and kind and, you know, patient and forgiving and, you know, all of these qualities that uh, don't come so naturally to most of us and uh, our skills that we actually have to develop on the meditation cushion in service of bringing them into our daily lives. So for the meditation practice tonight, uh, I will... Uh, not do the traditional metta loving kindness practice, but encourage uh, us all inclining our minds and hearts towards kindness. Um, so find a way to sit that is suitable for your meditation practice, whatever posture that feels like to you. One suggestion that I have is find a way to sit that um, feels like you can sustain it whether you're on a chair or the couch or a meditation cushion or in your bed or wherever you are, um, there is something important to, of trying to find a way to sit where you're relaxed, you're upright, you can have your legs crossed or not crossed, whatever feels like you'll be able to maintain that posture. Even if you get uncomfortable, the willingness to be like, mm, I'll just be with this, even if I'm uncomfortable in this posture, that it's okay to be uncomfortable big skill that we're learning is how do we meet our own discomfort with kindness, with friendliness, with acceptance. So whenever you're ready, making any adjustments, settling, allow your eyes to be gently closed. Feel the breath entering the nostrils, exiting on each exhale, soften a bit more, relax tension in the brow, the eyes, the jaw. Breathe out any extra holding tightness around the shoulders, chest, belly.
think of this practice of releasing, of softening, mindfulness of the body as an act of kindness. Sometimes we're holding a hardness in our belly, a resistance, and softening it is actually an act of kindness towards yourself. It can alleviate suffering. And the jaw is clenched when we're resisting, suppressing, just releasing the jaw as an act of friendliness to your own body. And then internally reflecting on your desire for happiness, your wish to be at ease, free from suffering. And as an act of kindness towards yourself, set the aspiration, the intention to be friendly towards your own mind, your body, even the discomforts, the pains that may arise in meditation as an object of kindness, the intention to accept and be at ease in the midst of our own reality, our heart, our mind, our bodies. So we practice mindfulness of the breath and body awareness that has no judgment, just awareness of what is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, peaceful or chaotic, easy or difficult. But allow the awareness to be kind awareness, each breath received by the kindest part of your wisdom mind, of your compassionate heart. Spending a few, few minutes with the breath as the primary object. Letting the thoughts be in the background, sounds, other sensations. Kind awareness of the breath coming and going at its own natural pace. Softening the belly as much as you can with each exhale.
of course, the attention wanders back into thinking naturally. We're all somewhat addicted to our minds. But mindfulness knows, oh, thinking about the future, the past. And then without judgment, kind, with an attitude of friendliness or kindness, choosing to return to the present time experience of the breath over and over, not judging the thinking mind. It's just what it does. It's, that, it's the job of that part of our brain hope, fear, even resentments. Just what the mind does, it's not your fault. Be kind, have a kind and friendly attitude towards your mind, no matter how many times it drags your attention off into some story, come back to the breath. If you're brand new to this kind of meditation, using the breath as a primary object is good. You can continue to do that. The Buddha's instructions continue, encouraging us to expand to the whole body, kind awareness of your posture, kind awareness of contact with the chair, the cushion, the floor, the couch or the bed, wherever you're sitting.
awareness of this body, mindfulness of the four elements. As we bring mindfulness to our whole body, the breath, the posture, all of the sensations from head to toe, it becomes more and more clear that everything that's happening is impermanent, arising and passing of each breath, each sensation. increasing, decreasing intensity of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral sensations. And we include the sense doors of hearing and seeing, tasting and smelling Sound is a great teacher, a great object of meditation, the impermanent nature of sounds arising and passing. How we perceive some sound as pleasant, some as unpleasant, some as neutral. Likewise with smell or taste. Or the images, even with the eyes closed, the seeing, shape, color, mental images. And the mind itself, thoughts, arising and passing, impermanent plans, memories, ideas, judgments, fears, turning towards your mind with kind awareness. They're just thoughts. becoming aware of how thoughts proliferate. A sound leads to a memory or a plan or a fantasy. And how those thoughts give birth to more thoughts. Watch your mind with kind awareness, without judgment, with interest and curiosity. My teacher encourages an attitude, a experience of unentangled participation with your own mind, with your body not being tangled up in it and identified with your plans, your memories, but just participating 
in a non-attached, non-entangled experience of what the mind is doing, just thinking. Or perhaps it gets quiet, it starts to settle. Kind awareness of tranquility or ease, absence of thought. Everything that we experience, whether it's in the mind or body or heart, and all of the sense doors, instantly perceived as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Every sound, every smell, every taste, every sensation, every thought, emotion. without kindness, without mindfulness, we often just cling to the pleasant, try to push away, get rid of, feel aversive or angry about the unpleasant. The Buddha's teaching is to learn to be at ease in the midst of our pain, unpleasant experience. Learn to be at ease in the midst of our joy, the pleasant and permanent phenomena that arises and passes through the heart and mind. If we can meet each moment with kindness, then we won't suffer about what's happening no matter how pleasant or unpleasant it is. A kind relationship to pain is always accepting and tolerating, having mercy and compassion for all of the unpleasant experiences that are unavoidable, we weren't able to avoid them, they're happening. No need to make it worse by hating it. Learn to be kind towards our own pain. The kindest relationship to pleasure is always non-attachment. Non-attached appreciation, enjoying, savoring even, being connected with the joys in your heart, your mind, in your life. Without 
turning them into suffering by clinging, attachment, always hurts. Always causes suffering. Non-attached connection is the goal. Each breath, each moment, an opportunity to let go of anything we're clinging to, soften the belly again, relax the heart, the mind, relinquish the story, allow it to be impermanent. Although we open to the full range of our human experience, thoughts and sensations and emotions, and you find yourself really drifting off into the thought world, ground yourself in the body, soften the belly again, feel the breath. And then open your awareness, kind awareness to your whole being again.
make room for all of the emotions, meeting our self with full acceptance, all of our minds, unskillful tendencies, our bodies, resistance to discomfort, our heart's tendency to defend, to close when things get difficult, painful. Accepting ourselves just as we are as an act of kindness. As we continue to try our best, inclining our heart, our minds towards mercy and compassion, friendliness. Even if we can't quite do it yet, keep trying.
offering and receiving your own kindness, friendliness, acceptance, and begin to extend this outward from your own heart and mind to others and people that you care about. Sending wishes for ease, for well-being, for happiness and freedom. See your parents, your children, friends, people here in the Sangha, everybody meditating together tonight, extending kindness to each other's pain, extending kindness and appreciation to each other's joy. Outward in all directions, loving kindness for all sentient beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, the intention, the aspiration, goodwill. Touching the suffering with compassion, the joy with appreciation. May all beings do what needs to be done to find the ease, the well-being, the happiness that they seek. May all beings find the willingness to develop kindness towards themselves, towards their own minds, kindness towards each other. And when you're ready, you can allow your eyes to be open, bring your attention back to space you're in, back to the Zoom room. I think it's a useful uh, practice after you meditate to reflect about what just happened in your meditation. Not to judge it or anything, but just uh, continuing with that mindful uh, awareness, non-judgmental awareness of like, oh, okay, there was, sometimes we have we're quite surprised by what happens in meditation. And, oh, I didn't realize that 
that much resistance was going to come up or that my mind was that loud or that quiet and the kind of tranquility that happens or I know that as I reflect on my experience of meditation, especially over years of seeing how the inner quality of my own mind slowly changed over the years. Um, and the, uh, even just the word kindness and my relationship to kindness or, or compassion and, and my experience, a relationship to compassion or, or non-attachment, like they're just words, but in meditation, you get this visceral experience of where we're at in this moment, in this meditation, uh, how the mind is responding, how the heart is responding these days to, uh, to our practices. So tonight's chapter is called Kill Em All With Kindness. And, um, you know, there's this very human experience that uh, we all have, one level or another, of uh, anger and resentment. And, uh, you know, even just for a moment, reflecting on uh, how many enemies do you have? How many, how many people do you hate? And I know you're nice spiritual Buddhist folks and you pretend like you don't hate anybody, but really like who's on the list? How many people are you like, you know what, fuck all of those people. And they kind of live, uh, you know, what it was the saying of like, they live with free rent in our heads <laughs> or in our hearts, you know, like of all of the resentments that we're carrying around. Uh, and whether those are like personal, uh, you know, people uh, that have harmed you, harmed us in some way or another, or they're the, the bigger, the politicians, the, the, you know, other people with different perspectives, people who we think are completely ignorant and confused in whatever way. And we just, there's that kind of like judgment, anger, fear, uh, spite, ill will, uh, And the Buddha's teaching, which is that uh, nothing is worth suffering about, uh, including and probably especially suffering at confused people and holding on, you know, even though it's totally normal, the mind all by itself, without any help from us. <laughs> The mind's nature on some level or another is to just like self-centered, self-righteous. I'm right. They're wrong. How dare they? How could anybody believe that or believe this or say this or, you know, that it's so natural, that self-centered resentment making machine that is our brain. But then enter, you know, we suffer enough in whatever ways we suffer and we come to the Dharma and, and then the Dharma offers us this radical proposal. How would you like to not suffer? How would you like to be free from suffering? And then we have to start taking stock at all of the ways that we suffer. And 
Yeah, there's lots of different ways to talk about the Dharma, but I, I like this simple way to, uh, and just reflect on this. I'm going to propose that the solution to whatever you're suffering about is kindness. That actually, if we can develop a kind relationship with whatever we're suffering about, whether it's, and you heard me in the meditation instructions, the, um, you know, if you're attached to something and that's what you're suffering because you're clinging and you're attached, the kindest thing to do is let go, right? So non-attachment as an act of kindness, stop clinging. And easier said than done, we all know that, but that's what we're training for. That's what we're meditating towards. Can I be less and less attached, less and less suffering? Or we're suffering about anger, resentment, fear, judgment, the kindest thing to do is to forgive, is to have compassion, is to accept. And then, you know, so kindness is the solution. Likewise, I would frame uh, our human self-centeredness, I, me, mine, as such a natural, impersonal, normal, way that we all suffer, taking everything personal, be so kind to stop being so entangled with your I, me, mine thoughts, so identified. So uh, breaking our addiction to our own minds and this self-making mind that we all have as an act of kindness. And not only towards ourselves, like all three of these, whether it's waking up to the impersonal nature or it's compassion or it's non-attachment. Yes, kindness towards ourselves, towards you, and you fucking deserve it, (laughs) right? Uh, It's absolutely, you're worthy, we are worthy of our own kindness, even if there's that confused part of your mind that doesn't understand that yet. But also this kind of internal radical shift towards kindness uh, is so beneficial to every single person that has to deal with us. Right. So it's not just selfish of like, cool, I'm like super kind and happy in here. It's a offering. It's a generosity. The kinder we become towards ourselves, the kinder we become towards other people. And I know there's a lot of people that seem to be very kind to other people and have that sort of like, I'm a giver. I'm a you know, I'm kind to other people, but aren't very nice, aren't very kind, aren't very loving, aren't very compassionate, aren't very good at not taking it all so personal internally. So it's, it's both inside and outside, this um, kindness as, as a way to frame the whole dharma. Um, I hope that makes some sense. I want to share this kill them all with kindness, this story from the beginning of this chapter. Uh, There's a story about a mother whose only child 
a teenage boy was killed in a gang war. The mother of the murdered child went to a court hearing of the young gang member who had killed her son and with an icy and vengeful look in her eyes told him, I am going to kill you. The younger gangster shrugged it off. He was on his way to prison for a very long time. How was this old lady going to get to him anyway? After the gang member had been in prison for some time, the mother of the boy he had killed began to visit him. Although he was suspicious of her motives, he accepted her visits since no one from his family ever came to see him. She never mentioned her dead son. She spoke with what appeared to be friendliness, expressing concern for the prisoner's well-being and interest in his life. On a more concrete level, the mother put money on his commissary account, brought him books to read or newspaper clippings about things she thought might interest him. They became so close that the boy began to think of this kind woman as the mother he had never had. He felt great remorse for having killed her only child and thought that perhaps he was repaying his debt to her by allowing her to treat him as her child. Years later, when the boy had grown into a man, came up for parole, the now elderly lady testified on his behalf, saying that she believed he had been rehabilitated. But she requested that as a stipulation of his release, he be mandated into her custody, paroled to her home. The man, remembering her oath to kill him one day, began to wonder if this whole time she'd just been plotting her revenge. But since he had nowhere else to go, and since he had truly grown to love this woman, for the most part, and for the most part trusted her, he agreed to being released into her custody. And so he was. Sometime after being released from prison, while eating dinner together one evening, the reformed gang member asked the old woman if she was still planning to kill him. I already have, she replied. Her plan from the beginning had been to kill with kindness and forgiveness the murderer he had become. She told him that he was no longer that young boy who had killed her son. That person had died long ago. And he was now an honorable and trustworthy man. She said that he was free to leave her home anytime he pleased, but that she hoped he would stay. They cried together and then they laughed together, both enjoying the truth of her confession. And he stayed on with her, caring for her into old age until she died some years later. Who knows if this is really a true story or not? Might be. Um, you know, some of these 
teaching stories get exaggerated, but it's such a beautiful idea that um, we can actually have such a profound effect on someone that our love, our kindness, our service, our steadfast commitment to showing up, if the, you know, of course it takes two, if the other person is willing, um, that there's something that can be so healing that our kindness can actually heal each other. And, it, uh, and of course, this example is so um, radical, a grieving mother having lost her son, any parent, um, having the wisdom to know that that violence always comes from confusion and wounds and ignorance, and that we can actually heal, that through love, through kindness, through compassion, through forgiveness, uh, people can heal, people can wake up, people can totally transform. So thinking about kindness, right? We do the loving kindness, we do metta and we say over and over for years and years and years, we train our heart, we train our mind. We say, may all beings be happy. May all beings be at ease. May all beings be free from suffering, the causes of suffering. And this develops an inner attitude of friendliness and kindness and goodwill. Uh, and then we take that into our relationships and we take that into how we talk to each other and how we listen to each other and how we uh, forgive each other when, um, you know, thing, conflict arises and, and painful uh, experiences happen. Now, a couple things that I want to reflect on and then open to some conversation. One is that uh, you know, I, I talk about in this chapter and it occurs to me how um, the kind thing to do is so situational. It's not always, um, and, and a lot of spiritual communities, Buddhist communities, other ones uh, can take on this like fake nice persona this sort of lack of authenticity because everybody's trying so hard to be kind that they're really just like suppressing and <laughs> kind of being fake, which, you know, hey, there's something, um, there is something to be said to, about fake it till you make it. I'm not, I'm not saying like, it. don't wait, don't wait. <laughs> don't wait until it's totally genuine before you start being nice, before you start being kind. Um, it's okay to fake it a bit. Um, but I am a, a huge fan of authenticity and of um, not pretending like uh, we're not angry when we are angry, learning to express that, not pretending like we're not, um, you know, hurt when we are hurt, not putting on the, the spiritual mask of like, I'm just like a peaceful, equanimous, you know, uh, person all of the time, like being... Uh, finding that balance of being real and being authentic 
and humble about how we are continuing to suffer while having the uh, intention to be friendly and kind and, and compassionate towards ourselves and each other. But thinking about kindness as situational ethics, the ethical, the, the right, the wise thing to do, the kindest thing to do, sometimes is, um, you know, like in the example of generosity. Like I think for the most part, like generosity, we think like, oh, it's kind to give, to, to be of service, to um, be generous. It's, you know, that's, that's an act of kindness from our own heart to help each other, to, um, to give. But sometimes it's totally inappropriate to give. And... Like I remember the first time I went to India and I was young and, you know, my twenties and, um, you know, there's just so many uh, children uh, begging and, you know, just feel like, wow, I have so much abundance from where I come from, even though I was not uh, was a young you know, kid, but not a lot of money, but just all of, you know, comparison, I had a lot of money and just wanting to be generous. And then coming to find out uh, that the many, not all, but like uh, many of the uh, children that were begging were being sort of run by organized crime in India and that their children were being mistreated and, and, and used in order to, to um, you know, make money for this sort of organized crime ring. And um, I, I, you know, I think, um, that was before Slumdog Millionaire, but I don't know how many people have seen that movie, Slumdog Millionaire, but like it's somewhat accurate that um, of what happens to a lot of the children. Um, and, and there was a kind of, and I was in Bodh Gaya and I was doing pilgrimage to the place of the Buddha's awakening. And I can remember like reading, there was some activists, you know, kind of saying, uh, had some pamphlets and some flyers that were saying, don't give, money to the children, to the beggars, um, because it's perpetuating this cycle of abuse. And if you, you know, your generosity as a Westerner or whomever, um, that you're actually, you're giving to something that is enabling this sort of uh, abuse uh, to continue. And how hard it was for me to get my mind around that and to think, and I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't really 100% know um, and to be honest, I ended up continuing to give some, I couldn't quite at that time, get my mind around not giving because I, you know, um, but some, sometimes I hope this makes sense in reflecting in your own life when it's actually wiser, kinder to say no and to not give when we're, and sometimes that's like giving at our own expense or giving in a way that is actually causing harm to someone else. You know, the, uh, some, I'm in recovery, so many of our community recovering addicts and, um, you know, many of us supported by family and friends that were like enabling us at some point, you know, like well, it's, it's a, uh, you know, a parent's uh, 
you know, nightmare and so difficult for a parent to say no to their drug addict kids, depending on what kind of parents you had <laughs> or what kind of parents you are. <laughs> um, but really developing that, uh, you know, how many times do you bail your kid out? How many times do you, um, you know, give them money when you know they're strung out? How many times? And so maybe it's not just children, but friends, you know, partners. Um, and then at some point, we have to realize that our generosity is actually enabling and causing more harm. And that the kindest thing to do is say no, and not bail them out and not give, you know, always provide, a, a, you know, a place for them to, to come or give them money or whatever it is, as an act of kindness, saying no. And, um, you know, I talked about it, but it's so count, you know, the Buddha's teachings going against the stream, it's so counter to our instincts to let go. And um, the kindest thing that we can do is to let go sometimes, is to uh, stop clinging, controlling, holding on, uh, hanging on to relationships that aren't healthy anymore, hanging on to, um, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's like if you're in a, uh, a bad relationship and you're staying out of sort of guilt or, or something, you feel like, oh, that would hurt them so much if I broke up with them or sometimes it's the kindest thing to do to walk away. Even though it will, of course, like it, it might hurt, but sometimes that kindest thing is going to hurt some. I'm guilty of saying uh, that the, uh, the awakened mind, the mind that is clear is uh, in a, in, incapable of causing harm. Uh, incapable of causing intentional harm, like the, the awakened, the Buddha mind is incapable of intentionally causing harm. And from one perspective, I mean, Buddhism is full of contradictions. And from one perspective, I, I think that that's true. But I also reflect on so many times where the Buddha is saying the truth, not with the intention to cause harm, but he's totally offending people. <laughs> left and right, you know, and he's talking about uh, equality and the kind of patriarchal, sexist, you know, culture that he's in is like just enraged by him empowering women and, and, and um, you know, he's accused of, you know, all of the worst things. Um, and it's, you know, somebody could be like, wait, you're, you're really causing me harm. You're telling me that my theistic religion is delusional. You're telling me that my, you know, caste system, my sexist, racist, you know, culture is delusional. Um, and that's harming me, right? That's, it's, you know, it's blowing apart my, uh, you know, what I've always been told is true. So there is times, I think, that 
when we're coming from a place of wisdom, we're coming from a place of, of wise speech, which is, is what we're saying true? Uh, is it useful? Is it the appropriate time? And we can kind of check our actions and our communications through this ethics lens. And sometimes being incredibly ethical and honest is still going to cause harm to people. They're not going to like it. You know, the bruised ego, the shattered delusions are quite unpleasant. Okay, I don't, um, I don't have so much more. Let's open to some dialogue. What are your thoughts, questions, comments? Topic is kindness, but if you want to go in some other direction, situational ethics, uh, happy to discuss and uh, see what comes up in the, in the sangha, in the conversation tonight. So reflect on this in your own life. Is there places where you're contemplating this, struggling with it? Um, and rather than putting questions in the chat, maybe actually you know, raise your hand and uh, we can have some dialogue if there's any questions, comments, clarifications. Ryan, go ahead, unmute and jump in. Thanks, Noah. Um, what is uh, the Buddhist definition of the heart? When you talk about like the heart practices and loving kindness, and, like what is that portrayed as in Buddhism? That's makes yeah. sense. We, yeah, it do, totally makes sense. And thanks for asking. Um, it is a, it's a really good question. There's a word in Pali in um, the Buddhist language, uh, citta. It's spelled C-I-T-T-A. And it uh, translates as the heart mind or the mind heart heart mind usually is how we how we say it and it's um, where we experience emotion and it's pointing towards both um, pleasant and unpleasant emotions and both uh, mental mind thoughts and physical sensation in the body and you know uh, generally not the buddhist definition but my, my sense of heart is that kind of solar plexus center, center of our chest where most people feel emotion the strongest. Uh, and that's not true, you know, of course it's not. Some people would say, no, I feel it more in my belly or I feel it more in my throat. Um, I think that there's a general uh, feeling that there's like this center channel of the body kind of that goes through the throat and you know, when you get choked up and you're with emotion or your heart, you know, in the solar plexus, or your belt, you know, kind of down this center channel that maybe we would call the kind of heart chamber or heart channel. And we call, you know, what, what I'm calling heart practices, the Brahma Viharas, um, the literal translation is the divine abodes. Um, but they're, you know, they're as much mind as they are heart. And the heart and mind are um, totally interconnected, right? The Buddha understood that the mind, our brain, is what gives birth 
to our emotions. Now we feel them physically, somatically in our bodies, especially in this center channel. Um, but it's always a thought <laughs> that gives rise to that experience of love. It's always a thought that gives rise to that experience of rage. <laughs> so whether it's love or it's rage or it's right, the, those emotions, both the afflictive and difficult emotions or pleasant and, and wise emotions always are um, kind of born in the brain and some sort of perception, some sort of consciousness in our brain that gives birth to this. Uh, you know, the Buddha says that, you know, the, the mind or the, is the forerunner of all things. You know, it's what the mind does. And if the mind thinks and acts with ignorance, then, you know, it creates suffering. But if the mind thinks with love, with kindness, with compassion, then it creates harmony and freedom from suffering and ease and well-being. But of course, the problem is, and why we're all here, and why, you know, uh, is that the mind's natural tendency or the heart's natural tendency is towards ignorance. That, you know, that our, our survival instinct is towards clinging. When I say ignorance, I mean attachment, aversion, self-centeredness, ignorance that causes us to suffer and causes other people to suffer. Um, so I feel like sometimes, I don't know, Ryan, if you feel like this, but that sometimes there's this sort of dualistic attitude, especially in Western spiritual circles where like the heart is good. And maybe I'm guilty of it too. Like the heart is the good part of us and the mind is the troublemaker. And I love that the Buddha didn't do that dualism. And he just said the heart-mind um, because they're so interconnected. It's not like you have a good heart, but a confused mind. Uh, you have a good mind and a confused heart <laughs> or vice versa, right? Like it can really, I'm told, I've never really witnessed this, I don't think, but I'm told that sometimes uh, in traditional Buddhist cultures, uh, Asian cultures that uh, sometimes Dharma teachers will point to their chest and talk about their mind and say, oh, my mind is full of love right now. Or vice versa towards their heads and be like, my, um, my heart is really quite angry <laughs> right now. And we have this sort of mind body, you know, separation but the Dharma, the Buddha, and you know, people who really pay attention, and we you come to understand there's no separation. And my heart's not all good. My heart experiences hatred. <laughs> my heart experiences rage. That's not just my mind, right? That is experienced somatically in my body. It also experiences love and compassion and kindness, like we're talking about tonight. Ajahn uh, Sumedho. Uh, said in this little pamphlet, I don't even know what it's called, um, but he was asked, it was a Q&A. He, he's one of the senior, most senior Thai forest tradition monastics. And he was asked this question and it felt like it was like in the 1970s, the way that it was asked or 80s maybe. But somebody said to him, because he was giving one of these train your heart kind of things. And uh, somebody said like, hey man, shouldn't we just like follow our heart? 
you know, shouldn't we at least like follow our bliss, bro? And he was like, absolutely not. Your heart got you into all of this suffering you're now experiencing. Following your heart, which is following your craving for pleasure and following your aversion to pain and following your self-centered heart tendencies. <laughs> He's like, you can't trust your heart, you know, the untrained heart. Like we all, like how many times have we been heartbroken, right? And yeah. was that your mind that did that? Or was that just your heart left to its own devices? Uh, shattering, right? Being so attached, so, you know, that your heart, I'm heartbroken. It's like the heart's not full of wisdom. The heart is full of clinging and craving. And But if we practice the Dharma, we train the heart. And that was Sumedho's answer. He said, don't just follow your heart, train it. There is wisdom in your heart and mind. There is compassion in your heart and mind. There is freedom, but you have to uncover it, not the untrained. The Buddha talked about people who didn't ever have a meditation practice as untrained worldlings. He said, you know, untrained worldlings just going around annoying each other with their views and opinions. Right? But when you start to practice ethics and meditation and you start to train the heart, then the heart becomes an ally. Then the heart becomes wise. Then the heart and mind become something that we can trust. Um, but without training, it's the instincts, craving, aversion, self-centeredness. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, welcome. Richard, did your question arise and pass? Uh, these things are impermanent. It keeps, it keeps arising and passing <laughs> over and over. Uh -huh. but I'll, I'll throw it out there. Um, it comes from experience. In my practice of uh, loving kindness, Meta, I noticed that uh, there's also compassion that comes forth. And they kind of oftentimes come together and vice versa when I'm doing compassion meditation, right? loving kindness is there as well. And, you know, and that's okay, but it got me to wondering, like maybe all the Brahma Viharas have to do with each other. Maybe they're all like interrelated. Cause I was also in your talk today, I was one thinking, yes, loving kindness, compassion, but also equanimity, good boundaries, you know, sort of like holding my own as I go into painful situations. I can't just throw myself on the, on the funeral pyre, so to speak, of somebody else's, uh, you know, burning life. Yeah. That would be not right. Yeah. So it just seems like they all have something to do with each other. And I was just wondering if there's a teaching on that or if it's just my confused mind that's making something out of nothing. No, for sure. It is the teaching uh, and you're, you're absolutely getting it. Um, we often teach these four different uh, practices, you know, in, in um, you know, sort of separate as, as separate practices, but these are the, you know, uh, these are what happened to our mind and our heart when we're free from ignorance. What, remi what remains is loving kindness for all sentient beings. What remains is compassion for all sentient beings. What remains is appreciative joy for all beings. 
and, and a quality of equanimity, of understanding that our love, our kindness, our compassion, our appreciation, everyone still has their own karma. So these are absolutely, these four uh, qualities are completely interconnected. Um, and somebody pointed out, and when we were talking about the heart with Ryan for a minute ago, and of course, this is not the cardiac muscle that is in our chest, but uh, somebody pointed out that the cardiac muscle that is in our chest has four chambers. Uh, and um, that, you know, we, you can think of in order for the heart to be pumping blood through your veins correctly in the arteries and veins in this, in order, you know, in order for us to really be functioning, all four of those chambers of the heart need to be working appropriately. And so there's the compassion chamber and the kindness chamber and the equanimity chamber and the uh, appreciative joy chamber. And they're all totally dependent and interconnected with each other in order for us to, uh, you know, continue living. <laughs> and, and so I think that absolutely it's, um, you're, you're onto something there, interconnected. I really like that image. Thank you so much. Welcome. Um, I see a question. Okay, let me go with uh, who was next. I think Christina, you're next. You can unmute and jump in. Hey, how are you? <laughs> so I think that my heart mind is actually kind of here in my diaphragm. It's not in my heart or my mind. I think they're both still super confused. Um, but I think that's kind of just like where my, my intuition is and kind of where I lead myself from, I don't know, maybe in that bottom lung area. But um, I guess my question is, when you're practicing loving and kindness meditations, why is it so hard to face yourself, but sometimes so easy to, to you know, those outer forces that you're forgiving, the big ones, the little ones, it seems kind of easy, but when you, when you turn it to yourself, why does it seem so hard? I think that there's two pieces to the, this. Um, one is biologically, um, our evolution as such, that we do have some necessity of being kind to others. And that it's, you know, uh, we, we need that in order to be accepted in the family and the tribe, the village, whatever we've evolved, um, where you better learn how to be somewhat kind to other people so that they feed you and <laughs> accept you and protect you and, you know, take you on the hunting, you know, trip or whatever it is, you know gathering trip, whatever it is. So I think we've evolved some level of that externalized, it's easier to be kind and forgiving to others. But, and that's a necessary survival instinct. Make sense? But it's not necessary to be kind to yourself. You can hate yourself and still survive. Right, and so that biological evolution of natural selection, right? We're just, we're just not born with this like, and be loving and kind to yourself. It's something we have to learn how to do. So some of it's, I think, just evolutionary biology. That's my sense. 
The other thing is, is that we get raised in a culture, in a Western culture. I said this, I think, last week, that apparently there's much less self-hatred in Buddhist cultures than there are in Judeo-Christian Islamic theism cultures that teach us the kind of religious cultural conditioning is that you are bad. <laughs> you are born into sin and, you know, and homeboy died for your sins and, you know, fucking Adam and Eve and all like, whether you believe that shit or not, that gets in there into this whole culture of self-hatred or low self-esteem or unworthiness. And, you know, not to, so there's the religious piece that fucks us all up. And then let's not even get into capitalism, which fucks us and, and advertising and, you know, the kind of the situation we live in where we're constantly bombarded by you're not enough. And you would be enough if you had enough money. <laughs> and if you bought the right shit, you'd be enough. And if you looked the, cool enough, you'd be enough. And right. So does that make sense? There's like this biological evolution that makes it not so not such an imperative to love ourselves. And then there's religion that says, like, you're kind of fucked anyways. <laughs> and then there's, you know capitalist, uh, you know, advertising campaign on our phones and everywhere we look that kind of gives you a like, you're not enough, you know, and so it just feeds into this. So then we do loving kindness. And loving kindness, and you sit there and say, may I be happy and your mind's like, no, you can't. <laughs> may I be at ease? May I be when I meet myself with kindness and there's a, a pretty common experience for, for people to reject that. And then, I don't know if for you, but I hear a lot and I've experienced some that people feel like, oh, this is too self-indulgent. This is too, this is too selfish. I should be helping someone else. I'm not allowed to sit here and be kind to myself. That's, uh, that's selfish. Um, so it's fucking hard. This is why the Buddha said, you know, like it goes against the stream. This is a radical action that we're trying to take. Um, but you'll find, like I found, and so many of us have found, that if you keep saying it, you'll start to mean it. And if you when and then you'll start to mean it, however long that takes, weeks, months, years, you'll start to mean it and you'll create that neuro pathway of inner <laughs> friendliness. And then uh, you'll start to feel it. And you'll start to feel like, you'll start to understand that you are worthy and that a lot of that religious, biological, you know, whatever conditioning is ignorance. And you'll have to start to have that discernment, like, oh, those voices are still there. I just don't believe them anymore. And you start to have kindness and, and friendliness, even towards that ignorant part of you that doesn't understand your own worth and ability. It's a process that will only take, this is, you know, Ajahn uh, Sameda's like train your heart. The untrained heart doesn't even know you're worthy of love. Whether it's your gut or your chest or your throat or your head, that part of you that doesn't even know that you're worthy of your own kindness needs to be trained, needs to be developed, needs to be 
received, however we want to talk about it. Um, we got to let that in. We got to uncover that. Does that make sense? Does that help? I mean, ultimately, it's just like, keep going, keep doing it. And uh, don't let that, don't let the fact that it's hard stop you from continuing to do it. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Welcome. I think Lee was next. Hey, Noah and Sandra, thank you. Um, it's been super helpful every thing that's been um, And I guess I'm just wondering, how do you discern between like a kind no that you were talking about and a an act of avoidance or like a fearful no um, when it's, yeah, I'm just kind of trying to figure out you know, in my body, I, I feel like I can kind of discern, but they seem so like an act of avoidance or in the moment of a fear, it feels kind to say no, but I also feel like sometimes it's actually really isolating and it, it's more self, it's almost like more self-destructive to do the no, but yes, yeah, so I'm wondering your thoughts on that kind of discernment. It's so hard to say for anyone else, but I really like the way that you're asking the question and you're reflecting on it. And it's even like when we finish meditating and I invite you to reflect on what just happened. Like when you say no, and then you reflect later and you say, was, it, was that an, a, an appropriate no? Or was that a defensive or an avoidance no? And that that's actually how we learn rather than like, I'm going to do it right all of the time. I'm like, I'm going to take my best shot at what's appropriate in this situation. I might fuck it up. But then on reflection, I'll start to understand, oh, you know what? That Maybe I jumped to no too fast. And, you know, it's also why we have the ability to make amends, ask for forgiveness, try, uh, you know, try, try to do it differently next time. We have to develop that discernment for ourselves. Nobody, you know, I, as a teacher, I can't tell you, um, but you're asking the right questions. You're reflecting on it the right way. Use your practice, use your mindfulness to investigate and reflect on, uh, should I be saying no more? Should I be saying yes more? <laughs> um, and we know after, you know, after the fact usually, and then sometimes we've made a mess of things and we have to go and make some amends and clean it up. That's okay too. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Noah and Sonia. Welcome, good to see you. Uh, Jesse, go ahead. Hey, thanks for calling on me, Noah. I hear the lyrics of face-to-face. Uh, -face. Uh, someone tell me what is wrong. Someone tell me what is right. Uh, not sure where I'm going. Um, just that that confusion inside my head. Uh, so something I was taught in, in, with another meditation teacher was to pluck away the thoughts uh, when they come in. However, I just noticed that I was labeling my thoughts and saying, oh, that's a good thought. That's, that's a worthy thought. And then suppressing no that's a, a bad thought like you were saying like that thought shouldn't be in my head right now um 
just uh, just a quick question of how how would you deal with that? How how do you answer to that? Um, to how we relate to our thoughts, whether they're kind of skillful or unskillful, or that discernment that we're trying to develop. Yeah, just in that moment, um, you know, real like I'm supposed to be kind to those bad thoughts, correct? Yeah. Like I'm yeah. supposed, yeah, I'm supposed to, supposed to welcome them. Yeah. But seeing, seeing those thoughts as, you know, the difficult, you know, seeing like, oh, this is a, un, this is painful. This is unpleasant. Right. So there's no, ju- like as much as we can removing good and bad and seeing that what we really mean is pleasant or unpleasant and that there's no judgment, like good and bad can be this sort of judgment. That's a good, you know, it's judgmental. The definition of mindfulness is non-judgmental, but discernment of that's a really unskillful, unwholesome, unpleasant, it's not bad, but it is unpleasant, right? It is unskillful, you know, for to sit in meditation in revenge fantasies or something like, it's not bad, but it's not so useful. <laughs> it's, not, it's not so skillful. Uh, and to have a, you know, this is to develop kindness, even towards the ignorant parts of our mind without pretending like it's all beautiful. And, you know, it's like, no, it's a fucking shit show in here sometimes, but I want to be kind towards this internal, uh, shit show (laughs) when that's, when that's what's happening. Um, I don't know if that, I hope that makes, I hope that helps some. That helps. Thank you. That was awesome. Anne, go ahead. Oh, you're still muted. You, you have to unmute. Okay. All right. I think, I think I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So speaking of shit shows, um, how do you deal with, you know, kindness to yourself um, with like regard with, with regard to like a, like, like deep moral injury. So for example, um, I was in the army and I'll tell you, it was the most fucking awful experience of my life. I mean, some of the things that I saw and experienced, um, uh, yeah, moral injury. It's, it's a good, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bad, I mean, it is a, fucking bad awful thing to live with i mean i've been i learned meditation um through i guess a, a class with sri sri ravi shankar um uh, sahaj samadhi um all that stuff and you know it's uh, you know it's the hardest thing you can do is to sit you know to sit with that and i mean what do you what what do you do i mean when you're when you're dealing with something that's that's basically rocked your whole world you know and you feel like yeah, my life is a fucking shit show. I know it's not a shit show, <laughs> but I mean, what do you, I mean, what do you do, you know, dealing with moral injury and, you know, being kind, you know, being kind to yourself in that, in that respect, I guess, if that makes any sense. Um, what I do and have been doing and continuing, continue to do is yeah. um, try to be kind, yeah. try to be forgiving, try to be compassionate 
and merciful. So I, you know, I continue to try to practice the Dharma, right? The Dharma, which teaches us to not cling to, you know, and to see the past and the memories and the traumatic and more, I love I, moral injuries. I, you know, I love what you, the way you kind of put that, like, uh, to see like that is some painful shit that I've experienced and the appropriate relationship to pain is friendliness and is compassion. Now there's this part of us that just hates it and wants to get rid of it and avoid and suppress and ignore it. Um, right. But then the Dharma asks us to just turn towards it and learn to, to bear witness to the pain and to meet it with friendliness and to meet it with as much forgiveness as we can in this moment with the humility that we're not gonna do it perfectly all of the time, but keep trying to do that. And so that's what I do and have been doing for a long time and continue to do. And I don't do it perfectly, but I'm gonna keep trying. <laughs> and I encourage you to keep trying. Yeah, that's all you can do. I mean, I, I went back and got a master's in social work. And so I practice psychotherapy with, with a lot of people. And it's just so easy, you know, it's easier for me to show kindness and compassion to them than it is to me but you know yeah. it's it is it is it is a work in progress so thanks welcome yeah ralph last one okay it's kind of a follow-up to a couple of the questions that were already asked in practicing love and compassion to ourselves or developing it in ourselves is there a kind of like almost like a limit that we can practice if we don't have compassion and forgiveness for ourselves in meditation to practice forgiveness towards other people then and compassion? It's, it seemed like there'd be kind of a, a point whereby you really got to get your own house in order, if that's the correct word. tend to think so. And I have been guilty of saying that if our, if we don't have compassion for ourselves, our compassion for others isn't totally genuine. Yeah. That there's something missing. I'm not sure if that's true or not. Maybe people can have real compassion and forgiveness and love for others and exclude themselves from it. Uh, maybe. I don't know. I, I just... There's a grease fire inside of us and we can do it towards other people? Maybe. I don't know. I know for... Um, I just I have such a subjective experience that um, I'm not... You know, there are people who, like I said earlier, who feel like they have a lot of love and compassion for others, but not for themselves. I didn't have that. I didn't have that experience. I didn't have the experience of like I'm loving and friendly towards everyone else. I just hate myself. I was equally, you know, as I hated everyone, <laughs> including myself. So my experience with the Dharma was from the inside out, and my experience was the more I became kind and friendly and forgiving internally, that I was able to bring that externally, and that it happened sort of at the same time. Um, so the practice, I, I'm sorry. So the practice then should be towards myself and others, or should I practice towards myself? And it just, I know it's kind of operational almost. Yeah. I guess I'm trying to make it operational. Well, you know, the way that we do the Brahma Viharas, the loving kindness, um, 
based on the commentaries where we break it down into five categories and you send some loving kindness to yourself and then you send some loving kindness to your benefactors. Then you send some loving kindness towards neutral or, you know, people or friends and family. Then you send some loving kindness to your enemies and then you expand to all living beings. So that way you are, you're developing loving kindness for yourself and you're developing loving kindness for your enemies and you're developing, uh, you know, loving kindness towards everyone everywhere. And so that was my core practice for the first 20 years or so. And so I, I became sort of like, it's both and. I learned to have those friendly thoughts and tolerate that towards myself and, and others and teachers and enemies and. Cool. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Both, both, both and. That having been said, it is sometimes totally good to just focus on ourselves. You know, to say, you know what, I'm just, I'm, I'm so stuck in some self-hatred, self-judgment. Uh, what if I just do loving kindness for myself for a year? Let's see what happens. So mm-hmm. it's okay to do that too. Uh, you, you've probably heard me say, you know, the Buddha who spent over 40 years teaching and being of service and compassion towards all living beings, spent the first seven years of his practice just doing his healing. And from his healing, from his awakening, from his realization that we could say, hey, that was selfish. The dude was just like on retreat, just like studying, practicing, you know, but out of that came compassion for all living beings. And then he spent the rest of his life serving, being compassionate. And here we are 2,600 years later, still talking about the dude. You know, like because because he did his practice deeply first and didn't go off half baked trying to teach the Dharma on Instagram. (laughs) He waited until he was fully baked. Anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. Good to see you. And, um, Class is done by donation. The rent just raised on our meditation. It, it raised in the form of it went back up to where it was pre-COVID for the last, for the whole year of COVID, our landlord gave us a discount. The discount is over, even though the meditation center is not open yet. So in need of your generosity, if you can um, be generous, please do. Uh, there's a link in the chat to the website to make donations. Suggested $15 donation. If you have more, give more. If you don't have uh, so much money right now, know that you're welcome to be here regardless of your ability to donate. But if you can be generous, please do help us uh, weather the closure of our center and the expenses that we're incurring. Hopefully we'll be open again soon. Offering the merit outward in all directions. May each one of us do what needs to be done to heal, to awaken. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.